1: Welcome to American Muse Podcast, where we explore hidden secrets in the landscape of 19th and 20th century American orchestral music. Your host is Dr. Grant Gilman, conductor, violinist, and author based in Atlanta, Georgia. In each episode, Grant unearths a fresh orchestral work by an American composer you may not even know. And by the end, we hope you are a new fan of the composer and their music. Now, your host, maestro Grant Gilman. Mm. So our guest today on American Muse is director of orchestras at Washburn University, international guest conductor, uh, former army captain and current conductor of the 44th Army Band, music director of the Colorado Pops Orchestra, composer, arranger, and cat lover. You can find him all over social media, along with his new interview video podcast, Coffee with Maestro. Please welcome Maestro Silas Huff.
0: Very nice to be here, thanks for asking me. <laughs> no
1: problem, <laughs> you're, uh, you're coming to us from? Uh...
0: I'm in Lawrence, Kansas at the moment, which is where I've lived for about a year.
1: Yeah. And so, so you're, you're now in your second year as Director of Orchestras of Washburn yes. in Kansas, and, and the first year as full-time now, correct? That's right, yeah,
0: last year I was the visiting professor and I was sort of hoping to win the permanent position, and I did, and it starts in five days. I'm not sure when your viewers will see this, but for me, it starts in five <laughs> days, and uh, so in the spring, I was really excited about this fall. <laughs> and now, <laughs> now it looks a little bit different.
1: Right. So, so, but so, besides that, you 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 had a very successful first year. They hired you, and then the world descended into this pandemic shutdown.
0: Yes. Correct. Yeah. They actually those things sort of happened at the same time. I was it was spring break in March and I was in Colorado. And, uh, the t- direct, the chair of the music department called me and offered me the permanent position, uh, assistant professor position tenure track. And I said, oh, wow, this is so exciting. Yeah. Great. You know, I did the thing you're supposed to do. I'll think about it. I'll get back to you and all that stuff. And then like the news broke within 24 hours, everything was shutting down. Schools were canceling everything. And I said, I better sign that contract Yeah. <laughs> before it gets revoked. Um, but yeah, so I literally was offered the position and then I haven't taught another day since then, at least not right. in person. Right.
1: I mean, it's, it's funny. You were thinking that. They may have been thinking exactly the same thing. We've got to get him to sign that contract.
0: Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have a feeling that the music department and I, we get along really well, and they were, I think, happy to offer me the position and happy I accepted. Um, but maybe some bean counter higher up at the university was like, you know, if we just didn't have to pay an orchestra director for a year, that would be okay, because we we might not have orchestra next year anyway so as it turns out we are doing face-to-face orchestra next week so they need me and i have the contract so (laughs) i'm going into my first year in the tenure track position ironically change a little bit of change of title a little tiny bit uh boost in pay but um the job's exactly the same i still teach the same classes and the same students and my my role will change i'll just be a little bit more invested so okay
1: you and i both grew up in texas yes both became musicians and conductors we lived in a few of the same cities yeah we worked together in new york uh for a story symphony yeah for the most part and yet we met in sofia bulgaria <laughs> yeah <laughs> and We're really, unless you're a conductor that might that might actually sound random but if but since you're still running you're you're very highly successful and, and very long running now, almost 20 years, right? At the, the international conducting Institute, uh, yes. you hold workshops all over the world, including most notably the Czech Republic and you host some of the most highly regarded conducting pedagogues in the world. And have. we try, we,
0: we do. Yeah. The, the instructors who have taught our workshops are some of the best. There are a couple of other that are some of the best that we haven't been able to get yet, but it's not for trying. Uh, it's not for a lack of trying rather. Uh, And so we've had, it's hard to count the number. So the the International Connecting Institute, it used to have another name and it happened in Republic. It's This summer would have been the 30th anniversary. Um, So next year in the 31st year, we'll have the 30th anniversary workshop, I hope. (laughs) But I've been organizing that workshop for 10 years. Um, But even before 10 years ago, I was organizing workshops with some other orchestras that I worked with. And so you you, uh, saw the Round Rock Symphony Workshop and uh, you saw and assisted me with a few of those Astoria Symphony workshops. And we've held workshops in Boulder, Colorado and, and um, in Columbia, Missouri. We've held workshops all over the place, finding the location and, and mostly finding the host orchestra. That's the hard part. Um, right. But it's really exciting. And like you said, you meet people from all over the world in the most random of places So hard to believe that, you know, you and I lived in the same place in New York for a while. And then again, in Virginia, and we've known each other for, what, 18 years, something like that, 17, a long Uh, time.
1: Yeah, a long time.
0: All because we happened to go to the same workshop in in Bulgaria. I think that's pretty incredible. And also, (laughs) it's a testament to how important it is for conductors, young conductors, especially students who are trying to meet people and they don't have a, a network. Uh, it, it's a it's a lesson to them that they you just have to go out and do activities, make friends with everyone. You never know who you're going to end up assisting or who's going to help you get a job one day or who you might <laughs> be on a uh, podcast with.
1: <laughs> right, right. Your career has taking you down all of these different avenues: uh, conductor, composer, guitarist, arranger, administrator, army captain, teacher, entrepreneur, just to name a few. Of the most prevailing ones that actually have job titles. So where in there, let's, let's assume that uh, for the moment that you had to pick one, what, where did you find or have you found your greatest satisfaction, both artistically and professionally?
0: That's, that's really difficult to say because each thing that I've done in life has given me satisfaction in a different way. Um, But I have to say that my time as the music director of the Astoria Symphony, that carries two um, glorious titles. That was my most artistically satisfying time and also my most frustrating time. Uh, Frustrating because money was always an issue. It wasn't really a paid job. It certainly wasn't a living. And... um, and uh, I, there were a lot of struggles. Everything was a struggle with the Astoria Symphony. However, I had kind of complete artistic control, and I was learning so fast. It's not that I was making great music, but I was. it was at the very beginning of my career. I had very little experience. And so everything I did was very satisfying because it was the first time I conducted a Beethoven symphony in concert, the first time I conducted a Brahms symphony, the first time I commissioned a piece of music, the first time I did Firebird, the first time I conducted a whole concerto top to bottom, I did all those things as the music director of the Astoria symphony, which I founded and got, you know, with some other people I got going. And uh, so that was, artistically, that was really satisfying to me, and it was good training so that when I later won a proper job that I didn't create um, if someone said, "Well, do you know how to write grants?" I was like, "Oh yeah, I did that with the Astoria." Symphony. <laughs> you did do you know everything. Do you ever write program notes? Like, "Oh yeah, I designed every <laughs> program book for 15 years." <laughs> well, do you know how to, you know, do you know how to build a podium? Yeah, I built a podium. <laughs> I was going to say you know, that I did everything that a conductor isn't supposed to do, even for the Astoria Symphony. So yeah, yeah that's, that's
1: that. When I think of Astoria Symphony and doing all that stuff, that's the epitome of that situation. I mean, I wasn't there for all of it with you, obviously, but, but like lugging that, that goddamn podium all around, (laughs) around Queens and to Manhattan and back. That was, that was, I was like, yeah, this is what it's like to be a conductor in New York. What what is this? This is crazy. But yeah, that thing, like it was perfect because it never broke. It was like, it was always sturdy. It was the perfect thing. And I know you made it, and yet, yeah. it weighed like a ton.
0: Yeah, because I didn't make it from space age materials. I made You're it with two by fours. Right. I got it at Home Depot. So obviously, it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> light. But that's reminding me of like the very first. It was the very first concert I ever conducted with the Astoria Symphony. So it was like 2002, I guess, or 2000, fall of 2003, maybe. And um, yeah, I was lugging that podium down the street. I literally was like carrying it down the street. I had my, you know, I was wearing my tuxedo and I had like a bag over my shoulder with the scores. I'm carrying this podium and was trying to hail a taxi and no taxi would pull over because I was carrying a podium. No kidding. So that was, you know, things like that. Like I don't do that anymore. We should, like by the time you're my age, if you're still doing that, you're really doing something wrong, I think. But um, yeah, that was something I that was in New York city even. So it's, I didn't own a car. There was no other way to do it than just lug that thing down the street. You know, one of the one of the fond slash not so fond memories I have is that I used to carry all my supplies for rehearsal in a rolling bag. Uh, it was actually like a cart. I kind of built it out of pieces of things, but it was like a luggage rolling cart, and then it had a milk crate on top of it. And then I remember that. Yeah, you remember the thing. All the, every musician who ever played with the Astoria Symphony, and that's hundreds of freelance musicians in New York city. They all remember like the conduct that bald guy that used to roll that cart around. He had music (laughs) stands, and he had parts in there and he had like a video camera and he had like, sometimes he had food in there and he'd pull out sandwiches for the whole orchestra. Like I had everything in that bag. And then several years later, I I wasn't living in New York anymore. And I went back and did a recording project. And a lot of the musicians were on, on that session And they all looked at me and they were like, Hey, where's the bag? You're not rolling the bag around anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what I wanted to be known for as a conductor, but uh, nobody ever accused me of, of being allergic to work. That's for sure.
1: That's (laughs) you were not, you absolutely were not because then on top of all of that, you had other jobs. You were teaching. I did. Yeah. Point. No, I never.
0: I never made a living as the conductor of the Astoria Symphony, which is ultimately what inspired me to leave New York City and and seek work elsewhere. But I was always teaching. I taught uh, little kids at a school on the Upper East Side, as you know. And I and I uh, was an uh, opera producer at the Manhattan School of Music for a couple right. of years, and then and then I was offered a job as a conductor in the Army, which was a really weird turn for me. But that was the first job. Um, that offered me a full time paying salary to be a professional conductor. That's right. why I took that job.
1: Right, right. All right. Let's go on to to the uh, the other subject of the day besides you. Uh, yes. So Horatio Parker, uh, member of the Boston Six, the second New England school. So you studied him during your doctoral studies, and and um, what what was it that you had to do for it? It wasn't the document, was it?
0: No, it was just for my comprehensive exams. And I I never took a class on Horatio Parker, nor did I take a class on American music or uh, none of those things. But one of my uh, doctoral committee members is a musicologist and happens to love uh, the New England, the first and second New England schools of music. And uh, so for my uh, comprehensive exams, uh, each of the professors is supposed to ask me one question and I've got like a whole day to answer that question in Mm -hmm. writing. And then I have to go in front of the, in front of the group of them and, and then defend my answers. Uh, And all that happened last spring and it went, it went pretty well, or it happened yeah, a long time ago now, a spring and a half ago or a year and a half ago. But uh, so one professor said, well, I'm going to ask you about the second um, New England school of composers. And that, and uh, I'm so grateful that she told me that because it gave me a couple of weeks to learn everything that I could learn about it because I was, If I had just been asked that as a question, I would have bombed horribly. And so that's my caveat is that I know kind of a lot about Horatio Parker because I learned it very quickly under duress, but not because I'm a musicologist (laughs) or an expert in early American music.
1: No, you were a resourceful doctoral student. That's, I, that's why, why
0: you learned it. I am. I learned as much <laughs> as you could learn in a couple of weeks. And I answered the question and I got I got gold stars all the way. I, I won. I did a good job. So
1: So with all of this knowledge, what can you tell us about the highs and lows of his personality, his career, and his compositional character?
0: Uh well I know less about his personality but a bit about his career. So he was born in the mid 1860 1863 I think and so that would make him um sort of the same age as Debussy and um let's see he would have been 20 years or 30 years younger than Brahms I think. He was a little bit younger than Dvorak but he was the same age as these late late romantic composers um you know, I think he's the same age as Mahler, for example, and right. probably Puccini, a little bit a little bit younger than Verdi, but so that's the that's those are his classmates. Uh, what made him special is that he was American, and there were very few uh, famous American composers in America even and very even fewer who were famous in Europe, and he was somewhat renowned. Um, in Europe, especially in England for whatever reason, English composers really took a liking to his music. Uh, but he started as a church musician as so many composers do and did back in the day. And he was an organist and he was born in Massachusetts but he he got church jobs all over in New York for a while and then New Haven and then in, in Boston. And his work in, uh, in, especially in New Haven and Boston was so impressive that he was offered a faculty position at Yale. And uh, even without a, without a degree, he studied a little bit. Uh, he studied with Chadwick, actually, who I think you're talking about in one, of your, in one of your other shows. And then he went to Germany because Chadwick said, oh, you've got to go study in Munich, this conservatory in Munich where I studied. That's where you'll really learn, um, you know, that's where you'll learn counterpoint and all that you know, harmony and all that stuff that, that was so important back in, in those days for composers. Right. Uh, and after coming back from Europe, that was kind of all he needed to do to get to work. But he never had a, a degree. So uh, funny story, Yale wanted to hire him as a music theory and composition professor, but they just had a rule that nobody could work there without a degree. So they gave him an honorary degree. Then they hired him. I don't think that would fly nowadays because you need transcripts and whatnot. But
1: now it's the other way around. You need to be famous first. And then, yeah, well,
0: maybe at Yale, but even at any university, they say, you know, do you have a degree? If so, send me your transcripts. And now you get the job. But in his case, they said, wow, you're really great. We'd like to hire you, um, but you don't have a degree. So why don't we just give you a degree and then we'll hire you. So that worked out pretty well for him. <laughs> and uh, one one thing I think is kind of interesting about him, it was sort of the end of the – it was the 1890s where he was um, – he was taking a train between New York, Boston, and New Haven constantly in Philadelphia. He was working. He had founded a, a choral society in Philadelphia. So in the 1890s, you know, now if you think about taking the train from New York to Philly, it's a piece of cake, 18 bucks in three hours, and it's there. But right. I have a feeling in the 1890s, it was a little tougher. <laughs> and so this would make him maybe the world's first jet-setting maestro, even in the days before jets.
1: Right. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's good. And, and, and that also means, I guess, that uh, like Chadwick, he, he was born long before there were trains, at least passenger trains anyway. And before there was there was electric elect- electricity. And yeah.
0: I mean, it must've been tr I imagine they were coal trains back then. And yeah. I don't think, I don't think they moved as fast as the, um, I have forgotten the name of that bullet train that goes from New York to DC every day, but you know, they
1: weren't.
0: Yeah. 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 It's not, they didn't move like the Acela I'm sure there were a stop in every little village along the way. And so, so anyway, to say like, well, I've got a church gig in Boston and I teach in new Haven nowadays, that's no big deal. You, you can just make that happen. But in 18 ninety three that must have been a hell of a way to make a living, but anyway, he did it right and uh, those are the nuts and bolts of his career, not really about his music um, regarding his music. It, he wrote in a in a um, German romantic fashion in the middle part of his career, he started exploring a lot more chromaticism and uh, different key relationships between movements and sections of pieces, a little bit like like brahms um i wouldn't say that at any point in his career he was so forward looking that he was ahead of everyone else like i said he lived at the same time as debussy what debussy was doing would have been way more harmonically advanced i think right but um but for for an american composer he was like the only person in america there were just these the small group of composers in new england which is why they're famous who were doing this this um the stuff, and so for that reason, he's significant as an important part of American musical history, even if most people don't know his name anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll get to that for sure. Yeah. Um, so, so let's 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 connect with with uh, Chadwick a little bit. So, Chadwick is only was was less than ten years older than him, um, but of course, Parker lists him as one of his biggest influences um, compositionally, anyway, um, and. Talking about the the very young Parker, I found this this quote by Chadwick. He says, he was far from docile. In fact, he was impatient of the restrictions of musical form and rather rebellious of the discipline of counterpoint and fugues. His lesson usually ended with his swallowing his medicine, but with many a wry grimace. So now this says just as much about Chadwick as it does about Parker. Chadwick, of course, got... Uh, this label of being very workmanlike, very um, like, yeah, the music is great. It's very well crafted. That's about it. There's no soul or something like that. Some some, yes. kind of, some kind of idea like that, which I can't, I don't get. I don't get that. But you know, I wasn't alive then. So, but so so even though it shows, it shows that in that quote, it, is is this seem like a an accurate statement of the composer that Parker became, or is it maybe just uh a, a phase maybe attributable to, just to youth because he was he was pretty young at that moment i think when he made that yeah that i comment
0: yeah he must have been 17 ish yeah. um if i remember correctly, i am re- looking at my notes he was 19 when he moved to germany so he couldn't have been older than 19 when he right. was studying with chadwick he was 17 18 19 years old obviously teenagers so even Old teenagers, like 18 and 19-year-olds, are, are pretty impulsive and independent and rebellious. That's just the nature of being a person. But it's also the nature of what every generation's view of the generation after them, right? I mean, every every generation thinks the next bunch is a bunch of slackers. That's just the way it goes. And, and Haydn thought that about Beethoven. And, uh, you know, I'm sure Schumann felt that in some way about Brahms. And for sure, Chadwick felt that way about Horatio Parker. Horatio Parker then went to study in Munich with uh, Josef Reinberger. And ironically, I think Josef Reinberger is like the Horatio Parker of Germany. Like a really, really great composer who's kind of famous because he's in history books, but not a common name. And Horatio Parker is sort of the same. But Horatio Parker and Josef Reinberger had this relationship in Munich as well. Uh, Teacher, student, rebellious student, didn't want to follow the rules. He kind of did his assignments begrudgingly and did a good job, but then he just, when he wrote his own music, it wasn't like that. Well, fast forward uh, 15, 20 years. And guess who's a student of Horatio Parker at Yale? Charles Ives. And guess what <laughs> Horatio Parker said of Ives? The exact same thing. And so I don't think it's, I'm never shocked. In fact, I would be shocked if I heard a, a composition teacher or mentor say of their student, no, he just does everything I tell him to do. And he loves it. And he writes music that sounds just like mine. And and he doesn't try any experiments. Well, that <laughs> composer's not going to get anywhere,
1: right? Neither's the teacher, really, <laughs>
0: <Right>. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and and by the way, this is a slightly off topic, but I think if if I were a serious composer and I wanted to really, if I wanted to pick a famous composer to study with, so that I could learn all I could and become a famous composer myself, I might choose a, some famous living composer now and go study with them and write music that sounds just like theirs, and then shoot myself in the foot, essentially, and not accomplish my goal. Right. Because a a student composer has to have their own voice. And uh so yeah, Horatio uh uh let me get this straight. Chadwick or Reinberger would have said of Horatio Parker, he's very rebellious, his music is pretty out there, he doesn't follow the rules, et cetera, et cetera. But now looking back a hundred years, 130 years, let's say, at Horatio Parker's music, it's very conservative. It sounds a lot like Brahms, and Brahms right. was. As I mentioned, thirty years older than Parker was. Right,
1: right. Uh, now, like you said earlier, you said that the that the English kind of took to to Parker's music for some reason. Uh, probably because of because of the the mass amount of uh, choral music that he wrote, and yeah. and that was still a big deal then. Um, now, Elgar seems to have been quite a fan, and in a in a, um what eighteen ninety eight letter to his own publisher he said the ora novissima contains more music that's elgar's emphasis um than any of your other englishmen have as yet managed to knock out again that says just as much about elgar as it does about his his uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, feeling sure. for feeling for parker but um so despite, despite that that arrogance what do you think he meant by that what did he mean by by his having more music, having more music than than most of the other English composers at the time anyway.
0: Well, before I answer that question, seriously, there's the obvious joke to be made that this comment may have been more about his fellow Englishmen than about uh, Parker, (laughs) because who are the other Englishmen we're talking about in the late 1800s? There was Elgar and there was Ron Williams and that's pretty much it. Yeah, right. Holst, maybe. Whoever else was on the roster at that publisher, they're all forgotten now. So right. it, it may have been Elgar sticking it to his publisher saying, why are you signing all these bonehead Englishmen? They're not nearly as good a composer as this guy is. But the serious answer, I think what you're really asking is, what did he mean by it has more music in it? And uh, that's a tough question to answer. Uh, they they He got started as a hymn writer, Chad, uh, Parker, I mean. Mm -hmm. and um and there were lots of hymn writers in those days they produced hymns by the dozens right um hymnals and hymnals and reams of of hymns but uh parker was trying to do something bigger And, and i think his his hora novissima is his um maybe not most performed work but his most famous work because of the grandeur of it and in some way uh most famous composers they've got that one work that's like the epic it's got the choir it's got the soloist it's got the whole giant it's the beethoven 9 or the brahms requiem or the uh you get it it's the Mahler, the Mahler two it's the piece right. that's the one in the horn <laughs> that's good and i think yeah and i think elgar may have just been saying like this piece of music has got it all like it's got all the bells and whistles, meaning chorus, soloists, and orchestra. And also it's just an, a massive piece. It's 11 movements and it's extremely well-written. Lots of different styles too. Like maybe that's what he was getting at was that it wasn't all in one style. It didn't all sound like the first movement. Um, there's acapella moments that sound like uh, Renaissance madrigals. There are um, arias that sound like they could be from Baroque opera. And there are massive choral pieces which sound like they could have been written by Mahler as well. Yeah. And so there is a lot of music in it. And um, maybe that's what he was talking about. I don't know.
1: know Now, that's interesting because I I agree with you with all of that. I don't know the piece as well as you do, but I I, I do know it enough to know that. Now, why do you think that he chose the text that he chose, which is, is not exactly... I think he specifically said something about not choosing a dramatic text. And he chose one that's kind of reflective. It's kind of like... Uh, Yeah, we all die, and we should repent and go to heaven and then uh, be better. You know, that's that's reductive, but still. uh, I mean, it seems like it would have been easier to choose something with a little more drama in it that built into the story, and then to color that text would have been slightly easier to compose to, but obviously he didn't seem to have any problem with choosing that. But why would he have chosen that text over so many others... That were available.
0: um, I'll take a few educated guesses. So, first of all, if I didn't know anything about Parker, I would have guessed that he wanted to write his big mass, but that he wasn't religious. That's not true because he was religious. So that's not the reason. But for example, Brahms, Brahms wanted to. He wanted to write his big religious masterpiece, except he didn't feel that way. He wasn't that devout of a Christian, and so he wrote his. German Requiem, which had texts that were religious, but they weren't really really you know it was it's not an actual mass for example right. and and then you've got uh Carmina Barana which came after Horatio Parker of course but pieces like that 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 uh dive into Latin poetry and find poems that are beautiful or evocative or dirty or you know like uh pornographic in the case of some of the Carmina Burana texts right. but um I think Horatio Parker wanted to write an epic piece of choral music like an oratorio that was not a mass and that explored spiritual um, uh, concepts but maybe didn't want to write a cantata or a mass or an oratorio per se Um, that's just kind of a guess at why he would choose a text like that then i think the more pragmatic answer the more practical and and probably the easier answer is that he collaborated with his mother a lot his mother if i remember correctly and now your your musicologist eagle eyes will find all my errors here because now i'm really just guessing and recalling facts that may or may not be true. But his mother, I think was like an English teacher or a professor of writing or something like that. And she also spoke Latin and was um, a linguist and, and a scholar of old texts in those forgotten languages. And so I think that his mother chose that, um, as the libretto and then s- sort of adapted it for him. And I may be wrong about it. I know that they collaborated and I can't yeah. remember if they collaborated in Hora Novissima, but that may have had something to do with it too. For sure, if his mother didn't choose choose this and say, "Hey, you should you're thinking of a, of writing a big oratorio. I've got just the text for you. It's this obscure Latin poetry that no one knows about except for me. You should set that." If that didn't happen, then he at least must have asked his mother for some advice. Like, I'm right. thinking of doing it. And I found these poems. What do you think? Um, because they were very close. She was very intelligent, and it would have been a no-brainer.
1: Right, right. No, I Just think I remember friend. that about his his mother, and uh, I'm sure that it had something to do with it. It is an interesting choice. I mean, we are here talking about him uh, for reasons not related to the fact that everyone in the world knows who he is. But we are talking about some of his pieces that have those elements in it. They're they're different from everything else, and that text, that choice of that text, I would doubt that anybody else chose that as a uh, the subject for their their religious work. Yeah, I don't know. It's not a thing anymore, right? It's not. It's not like you have to if you are going to be a big time composer, you have to have a big religious work anymore. But at the time, that obviously that was the case. So but but it does it does kind of make sense that that if he was if we're coloring his character then if he was kind of coloring outside of the lines in that way then he he would be he'd be like oh yeah nobody else knows this text really so let's go with that yeah it could be and he wasn't he
0: wasn't ambitious in the way that some composers wanted to have a um they wanted a legacy of some sort like i've got to write the great opera or the great whatever so that my name will always be remembered he he wasn't like that i think he was literally he was truthfully looking for a fantastic he wanted to produce a fantastic piece of music like a really important piece of music and not any text will do but on the one hand it didn't have to be a old testament or new testament or a non-religious or a it didn't have to be latin even it could have been anything that spoke to him um now, I don't know his biography so well. It would make sense that in, if at this time he was also uh, maybe going through some strife or something because the text I find actually quite dramatic. It's not dramatic like, like uh, Carmina Burana, for example, right. but I'll read the first couple lines of the text. The piece opens up by saying, the world is very evil. The times are waxing late. Be sober and keep vigil. The judge is at the gate. Well, that one sounds like something someone <laughs> would write in 2020.
1: Yeah, right, right. <laughs>
0: You know, that sounds like something written in a moment of crisis, the judge that that comes in mercy, the judge that comes with might to terminate the evil, to diadem the right. I mean, that's pretty like brim, fire and brimstone kind of stuff. <laughs> um, I will, I'll say this, though. What I do know about his biography is this was written in 1893. Mm-hmm. In 1893, he, was, he had just finished working or was at the end of his time at the uh, New York Conservatory of Music, I believe was the proper name for it. That Dvorak was the director of, right? And Dvorak, and he overlapped by one year. Uh, he was never the director of the school, but Dvorak was the director of the American Conservatory of New York, something like that. Um, everybody knows the story of how Dvorak came to America, lived in New York for a few years, visited Iowa, went back home, etc. Wrote his great um, New World Symphony. Well, that was that. The end of Dvorak's time was the beginning of Parker's time at the conservatory in New York and they worked together. Dvorak would have been his boss for the first year he worked there. And I can't imagine these two brilliant composers not talking about music frequently. And when they talked about music, I can't imagine Dvorak not bringing up Brahms frequently. And so it's no mystery to me that this piece just reminds me of the Brahms Requiem so much. Uh, And not that he was emulating Brahms or emulating Dvorak's Te Deum for that matter, but I think in this year, one year after work, working in New York City with Dvorak, he would have said, I'm also going to write an epic choral orchestral <laughs> masterpiece. And, and like Dvorak and Brahms, it's going to be religious in nature, but it's not going to be a sacred text. What text can I find? And so for whatever, however it happened, he found this text.
1: Right, right. Now, going a little bit sideways, uh, Parker does have an opera um, titled Mona and and it premiered in 1912, so considerably later. It was premiered by the Met Opera and probably had four performances with the Met, and that's probably yes. the only time that um, anyone in the world has heard full performances, fully produced performances of that opera. I didn't check that for sure, but it seems like that's the only time anybody ever fully put it on, um, right. was those first four performances. So... So now he does, it does seem that, I don't know this firsthand, but it does seem that Parker has a little notability with, with choral music still. Why is it, do you think that, that Mona didn't catch on the same way? Well, um,
0: I'm trying to, I admit that I'm I'm Googling something very quickly because I remember the story (laughs) of this opera and, um,
1: it's 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 essentially the it's this it's the southwest portion of england um while the the romans were occupying it and mona yeah. was i can't remember his name but she was engaged to be married to a roman soldier but she didn't know that he was a roman soldier and he was right. really working for he was working against the romans and for this her and and this particular group of yeah english i remember and there and was in something the end. like that
0: yeah and in the end the she kills him
1: yeah
0: oh she killed okay well, she kills him uh,
1: before finding out that he was on her side like secretly.
0: well that's that sounds like typical opera plot to me <laughs> yes yes it was agree. great <laughs> it sounds like a good story it sounds like more or less the, you know not the same story as every opera but it sounds like a good opera story right and his music his music that i know is good enough that i can't imagine that wasn't a captivating piece of music. But there was some controversy surrounding the piece and its premiere or its production. And the, by controversy, I mean that, that opera in America at the end of the uh, 19th century was run exclusively by Italians right. um, or Italian-Americans, but like really Italians, like recently immigrated uh, Italians and they they didn't like music that wasn't italian it was you know hearing a german opera was next to uh, impossible or a french opera it was just italian opera and there was some controversy about the language or the, the fact that one of the characters was italian but he was singing in english or that they were all singing in italian but the italian wasn't quite right but so the, <laughs> i'm now i'm making stuff up but the real answer is why didn't it, why didn't it stick well he was born at the same time as Puccini and, and not to knock Horatio Parker, I can't imagine anything he wrote was as good as anything Puccini wrote. And so the Italians who are running the Metropolitan Opera probably also recognize that. And even if his music was better than Puccini's, they would have favored Puccini as a uh, fellow paisano. Right. Right. Um, I think that's the case and I'm I'm really I'm racking my brain to remember the story uh, and I wish I had looked Maybe. it up before today but but there were one of those um New England second New England school of music uh, school of uh, composers wrote an opera that that was about Italian Americans immigrating and it was an enormous flop because the people who were producing it were immigrants from Italy and they all like it didn't speak to them or they thought this right. guy doesn't He's trying to speak for us, and he doesn't he doesn't know I can't remember if that was Parker or somebody else, but that may have been even Chadwick, I just don't remember
1: actually, I think it was I think it was Parker's other opera, but of course I don't remember yeah it could have, it could have been
0: so <laughs> yeah, for whatever reason, he was known as a church musician and he was known as like a music theory nerd, uh, you know Yale professor, and so he just his his opera just wasn't successful, and doesn't mean doesn't mean it wasn't good. Right. Um, but you're, you're, it did the one production, and then was never heard of again. I'm right. sure it's still in their library, and and one day they may choose to do it again. Although I don't know why they would.
1: Of course, the the uh, the vocal score is on IMSLP. Of course, oh, who's really? gonna like go and go and like dig that up and start and learn some arias, but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's making me want to look at it because I'm curious. For example, is it even in Italian? If it is, no, it's
1: in English. That, so he wrote it. Yeah. He, uh, I forget the guy's name, but he used a librettist. Actually, he used an author to do the libretto, and it was he, it was written in old English, which even yeah, at the time so, was awkward. So right, he and did That's it, why it flopped. Right. right, that was part of it. The other reason was I think that actually, even though he released it after the opera premiered. He, the, the uh, author released the the text of the opera as a book, and that became more famous than the opera and oh. was was praised as like, oh, well, this is a great story, so why do we need the opera? Something like well, that.
0: Well, you're making <laughs> me want to look at that uh, vocal score and, and, and check it out a little bit because I'll bet there's really great music in there, and it sounds like a good opportunity for some... Uh, student conductor to put together a production at their university, at least do some scenes or something.
1: Of course, the other, what you're mentioning about the singer, I remember uh, the, um, I think the review or one of the reviews said that the Sopranos sang very well, but it was like singing a Wagner opera. So there was Uh, no way she was going to be able to sustain that uh, for multiple productions. So you just got to find a Wagnerian Soprano.
0: Soprano, sure. Well, don't they problem. exist, so
1: <laughs> <laughs> they do now, I guess. Yeah, at the
0: time but, they were. Know, to be honest with you, the, just the opera scene at that time in in New York history. I want to say in American history, but there were there were there were only a couple of opera companies. They're all in the Northeast, probably. Um, there may have been some small opera company down south that I don't know about, or in some frontier town. But so basically, when we're talking about uh, the American opera scene in the 1890s, we're talking about the Metropolitan Opera. That's it. Whatever else was going on in America didn't even wasn't even on the radar. So, if he wrote an opera in English, that's why it failed. <laughs> and if he wrote an opera in Italian, that's why it failed. I mean, it doesn't really matter what language it was in. He's an American guy writing something that wasn't, you know, Puccini or Verdi, and so, yeah, naturally it didn't do well.
1: Ironically, too it's bad. probably not too much different now. I mean, I mean I with know. the exception that like there are many more German operas still now performed at the Met, there's there's not a whole lot of like variation of repertoire, both in opera and in orchestral music, which is partially why we're talking about this. And no, and then
0: it's a little off topic for our conversation today, but I think going forward, opera companies and orchestras, for that matter, are going to be looking for new repertoire just to, you know, this year was kind of a reset in the orchestra yeah. world, in the, in, in the world. It was like a, it was a pause, reboot, let's see what we can do next year. And so opera companies, I think, are going to be looking at more contemporary works and works by women and composers um, from demographics that were traditionally neglected. And so for that reason, I don't know that anyone will ever go back in time and find this Horatio Park, Parker opera. I just don't I can't imagine why anyone at the Met would do that when there's right. all this new stuff to to produce a new. Right. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, let's give them something anyway. Let's give <laughs> let's give him another piece. At least the orchestras anyway. So so a northern ballad, which he yes. wrote in 1899. So before that, but still quite at the peak of his career, uh, is probably the the only orchestral piece that's still performed um, with any kind of regularity. And that's kind of ironic that it's it's an American composer, and if anybody you know realizes that about him, but the most of the thematic material is mostly Scottish and it's not a Northern Ballad about North America. It's, it's about Europe. (laughs) So, um, so, and despite his long, his career long goal of establishing himself as purely American, trying to shed this German European, uh, influences, or at least in, in, in talking anyway, which I agree with you, he didn't really do it music wise, but he did talk about it um actually you know the thing is we're still brought up that way now as music students we go to school and we're brought up the same way as as he was except we're not expected to go to europe we just brought all europe here and so we're still ingrained with all the best european romantic german mostly and italian all of that repertoire and that's what we base everything on for better or worse i'm not saying it's bad because obviously it's not i'm not going to knock on Beethoven and Brahms, but um, but in his case, he's trying to he's trying to reject it, and at the same time, he mostly sounds like it. Um, and in this piece, it's it's overflowing with these these similarities to Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet from the from the very beginning. Right. So, so is it is it those elements? Is it those German romanticism, uh, European things? The, the the Tchaikovsky, all of that stuff that that is what makes this piece at least a little bit on the fringes of the, the, the orchestral canon, or or is it something else? I mean, what, what is it that, that keeps it in there?
0: Well, I think that's two different questions. One is why would he write a Scottish tone poem? Uh, what inspired that? Why did he do that? How is that American? That's one part of the question. And the other question is why is it now obscure and not performed frequently? So regarding the first half of that question, I think, uh, lots of stuff was going on in America that time. So, first of all, nationalism was a, was kind of a, a prominent movement around the world. We've got... Hold on. Something's happening. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. The alarms were going off in the whole building, and we went downstairs. Everyone was evacuated fire department showed up, it stopped, and they said, you can go back in, and that's all we know. Wow, that's it. Amazing. Yeah. I was on a roll before, I'm. I'll have to remember what I was going to say. Uh, we something about, about a
1: northern ballad. Um, I was saying... There was a lot of nationalism...
0: Yeah, good luck uh, editing this back together. But uh, I, was, I was saying, it might make a funny moment. I was saying that uh, nationalism was a big thing in, in the world because we have Grieg doing Grieg stuff and Dvorak doing Dvorak stuff and Smetna and, and uh, Stabelius, for example. And uh, American composers were not immune to that effect. The difference being there was no strong American tradition yet, right? right. So it wasn't like you know uh, Finnish composers were saying, I'm going to write Finnish music and American composers are like, damn it. <laughs> right. I guess I'll just write, you know, like variations on Chester. That's really the only thing we've got going. But, um, but I think American composers leaned on their family's heritage. And so you have, for example, in this time, uh, Amy Beach writing a Gaelic symphony. Right. So maybe the first great American symphony was a Gaelic symphony. Right. Right. Crazy to think that way. But that was before, I mean, the first real American American Symphony might be by Charles Ives and you know his symphonies are weird. Yeah, they are crazy. Yeah Um, And they are more American than this is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right and the other thing that I I remember reading about Amy Beach is that her she wrote the Gaelic Symphony in part in response to um, Dvorak's New World Symphony Uh, because Dvorak came to America. He it was a weird and bizarre place. He met uh, black people for the you know like yeah, you right. can imagine being a Czech guy in 1892, and like oh I'd like to introduce you to my friend J- Fred or Joe whatever, and he was like <laughs> what oh my God a black person I heard about you know, so that for him was very exciting and it led to musical explorations and then uh, I think most conductors know this but Dvorak said on the record or he wrote an article or publicly he exclaimed American composers need to rely on the music of Native Americans and African Americans. That's that's the American heritage. And first-generation immigrants from Europe rebelled against that because people like Amy Beach were like, well, I have about much, as much knowledge of African American spirituals as I do of any other kind of music I know nothing about. What I do know is Irish folk music because that's what my parents taught right. me when I was a kid. So that's a very long explanation. But what I'm getting at is that I think – this was, he wrote uh, his Northern Ballad just a couple years after he, his time in New York City working with Dvorak, he had for sure by this time met, uh, befriended, um, and learned the music of Amy Beach, and probably was looking for his big expression of orchestral music that was not a choral piece. Right. And so, yeah, the Northern Ballad is a wonderful piece of music. It's oh, Incidentally, Tchaikovsky came to New York City in the time that um, Horatio Parker lived in New York City. So it's likely that he met Tchaikovsky. If he didn't meet him, he for sure was at one of the Carnegie Hall performances of Tchaikovsky's music. And um, I don't remember what, what was performed at Carnegie Hall during that visit by uh, Tchaikovsky, but I imagine Romeo and Juliet might have been on one of the programs. I'm sure it was, yeah. I mean, it must have been because it was such a big piece of music. So, yeah, there, you can hear all that. You can hear that there's the that there's the flavor of Tchaikovsky, the flavor of Dvorak, the, a, a northern European flavor, maybe resistance to Dvorak. All that stuff is in a northern ballad, and uh, and so uh, your average layperson, music lover slash audience member wouldn't wouldn't hear all that, but composers who kind of know their stuff even if they've never heard of Horatio Parker and don't have the score in front of them, they would listen to this, a recording, and be like, I, yeah, I totally hear that. This sounds like it might have been written by a contemporary of Dvorak or Brahms or Bruckner, for example, but man, it sounds like he's kind of copying Tchaikovsky and then immediately going like, I'm not Tchaikovsky. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's, uh, yeah, that was part one of your question. And part two of your question is, why is it now obscure? Which is a, a good question, but one could ask that about why is any composer from the past or a piece of music by famous composer obscure? And just because it was selected. It was selected out of rotation. I don't know.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, it's, know, it's, it's, it's hard they to question to record- answer, yeah. But I yeah. mean, it is, it is like the only one that shows up multiple times, right? Like on recordings and probably, yes. though I'd, it wasn't on my radar, until now but like probably on actual uh programs like orchestral programs that that it actually shows up in the repertoire i've never heard of a a live performance of it but
0: when i was learning about this stuff last year i read that oh it's frequently performed on concerts especially in the northeast especially in in massachusetts and i was like it is i don't know i mean i've never (laughs) lived in boston i wouldn't know if it's every 10 years ends up on the boston symphony program but I did take note of the fact. That there's only one recording that I know of, and there may be more. But the, the famous recording is by the Albany Symphony, and Albany's in that area, right? Like it's in New York, but it's, you get it's closer. Albany's closer to Massachusetts than it is to New York City yeah. geographically. I mean, and probably culturally too. So yeah, I mean he's he's definitely like an upstate New York slash North well, he's one of the New England school of composers, and there it is.
1: So now this is know. all building to the the toughest question of all, maybe unanswerable, certainly unanswerable, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. So <laughs> great. Yeah, as with all the other composers we explore on this show, uh, Horatio Parker is definitely not a well known name person composer, whatever. Um, uh, And yet, there's no doubt that the music is superb. It's well-constructed. It's dynamic. I mean, it's got all of the things that we would want, whether it's reflective of Germanic music, European, late Romantic, whatever. it's It's still great music. So why might it have slipped into oblivion? Why might he have slipped into oblivion? I mean, aren't we taught that time dispenses with the bad stuff and keeps the good stuff does this really have something i guess there's there's one theory that this has something to do with that very famous uh student he had at yale who became famous and then everybody forgets about whoever came before him um but so do you think that that's reasonable or is that just a convenient excuse
0: well, that is, as you mentioned, an impossible question to answer because we could ask it of Horatio Parker or any of uh, several hundred other composers and living composers now that we wonder, is this person going to be known 20 years, 100 <laughs> years from now? We we have no idea. <laughs> right. And it would be difficult to name who's the most famous living composer today. Maybe the most successful living composer we could say, we you, you could drop a name and say like John
1: Adams or I mean, I don't know who it, who it is. Probably it's certainly. John Williams, right? And that's like that's like right. a strange John Williams who hybrid, in classical yeah.
0: music circles is dismissed. Right. But so, <laughs> yeah. but okay. So let's say it's John Williams a hundred years from now, will we be hearing John Williams music performed? Uh, I mean, maybe at film festivals. Yeah. In right. movie, probably still hear it, but will we, will we hear it in concert? I don't know, but okay. So here's what I think about Horatio Parker. I think he was a fantastic composer, extremely talented, perhaps even a genius. And, uh, and he wrote a few pieces that stand out. Hora novissima is the is the the real standout piece. Northern Ballad is the most performed, but I think it has as much to do with its with its reasonable instrumentation and its duration than anything and performability. It's not easy, but it's not impossibly difficult. It's for um, what is it? Triple wins, I guess. What's well, double wins with, with an English horn and an extra and a piccolo? Um, four horns two trumpets, three, but so it's for a reasonable, it's like a Brahms size orchestra, let's say. And it's 12, 13, 14 minutes long. And, And so any orchestra, like a good youth orchestra or a mediocre professional orchestra or a fantastic professional orchestra can play this piece. And it makes a great concert opener, especially on a themed concert, like American music or like honoring our forefathers who came from Europe or for whatever reason, if you wanted to make a theme, it'd be very easy to include this piece. And so that's why I think it's still, um, gets programmed or could be programmed. And I I think it's a swell piece. I'd love to conduct it one day, but, it, but I have a long list of pieces I want to conduct, and it's not <laughs> right. at the top. Right. It's just right. not at the top, not because of its merit, but just because there's other pieces I would rather hear. Um, but here's the thing about Horatio Parker. Apart from being a, uh, a mentor to Charles Ives for a couple of years, he doesn't really have any historical significance. He didn't alter... I mean, maybe if he hadn't been Charles Ives' teacher, we wouldn't have Charles Ives, and then we wouldn't have, you know, American modernism, and then we wouldn't have gotten Philip Glass. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. like, that's the butterfly effect, right? We'd be in a other universe where, like, Biff owns a casino, and <laughs> <laughs> you right. know what I'm saying? Like, if Horatio Parker was never born, would Charles Ives even have, like, would we even have automobiles now? I don't know. <laughs> but, But probably... Probably Horatio Parker didn't have any real major impact on American musical history. And he didn't produce, he wasn't so prolific that he produced a whole pile of amazing pieces of music that that someone could hold up as canon, right? There's like 10 orchestral pieces and one of them is performed every 20 years by the Albany Symphony. That's not significant. And Hora Novissima is amazing. It would be performed more if it didn't require an enormous choir and an enormous right. orchestra. And also, if I had an enormous choir and an enormous orchestra, would I perform it? No, I'd do the Verdi Requiem or I would do right. you know, Mahler 2. I'd do something else.
1: I mean, you're and talking so, in that case you're talking about at least a year of preparation if not more. Just from right. the perspective of not only the, I mean the orchestra not so much, but but like definitely the choir. The choir has to like plan two years ahead of time to say, Oh, we're going to work on this piece. That's a whole year. That's the year right, right.
0: there. And, and, and not to make it about um, pleasing the wrong audience, but you know, uh, performing arts organizations have to serve their board of directors and their community. and. If I were really excited about Hora which I generally am, I, I think it's a great piece of music and I'd love to conduct it one day. If someone else produces it and hires me, I'll do it. But if I have to produce it and I have to sell it to my board of directors and sell it to the choral choir members and everything, um, is it is it really the right piece of music to perform for this audience at this occasion? And is it going to make money and all that stuff? Those are all questions that performing arts organizations ask themselves all the time right and so i might say next year i'd really like to do this this piece it's important for these reasons and so let's do it and the whole board of directors goes horatio parker never heard of him can't we just do the very requiem again or like a in concert version of uh la bohème or you know <laughs> and how so do you whatnot. argue with that really right. yeah, or anything else can we just yeah. do anything besides this piece i never heard of it and so maybe that's why Horatio Parker fell to the wayside. His, he, didn't, he didn't prove to be enough of a force in American musical history to be even Amy Beach. I think Amy Beach uh, overshadowed him for sure. Maybe in part because she's a woman. I don't know. But, um, but Chadwick, too. Who knows who Chadwick is? Or Arthur Foote. I mean, nobody knows these names except musicologists and me right. and you. Right,
1: right. Well, I'm going to inform, yeah. uh, uh, you know, all 20 people that listened to, to my show. So yeah. Well, you'll the 20 more people in the
0: pudding. If five years from now you're hearing performances of these, you know, the, the New England Six, network shows <laughs> all over America, you'll know it was all because of this podcast <laughs> that, that re- revival happened. But um, it's, <clears throat> it's possible. There is a new, there's a, a movement alive right now in America to perform more American music. And I think generally people are thinking of new music. <clears throat> and music by composers who are alive, so they're not thinking of Horatio Parker. But right. I could see a time twenty years from now when pe- someone somewhere goes digging, or you know, a major orchestra like Chicago or New York or Boston, more likely, does like uh, a cycle of, com- of pieces by these composers, and or there's a, a new recording that comes out. I mean, all it takes is BSO putting out a recording of some contemporary American music, and one of the you know the B side is this. Northern Ballad, and then every orchestra in the world is playing it again. Right. By the way, it's on imslp It's free. Any orchestra <laughs> can play this. Like any university orchestra director tomorrow can print these parts out and put it on the stands of their musicians, and uh, even, you know, mediocre university orchestra can play this piece. Right. So, yeah, right. maybe this is what I'll do next week <laughs> if I have <laughs> the right ins- I, I won't have a large enough orchestra, really, but I, you know, I, I might do this piece with my university orchestra in the future. Who knows? Well, there you go. It's already a success. Yeah. So there it is. All the questions answered. <laughs>
1: there they are. Well, thank you, Maestro, for for talking yeah, about pleasure. this today. Um, thank you I mean, for asking me. It was. And by the way, it's nice to see you again
0: because we <laughs> yeah. haven't like. Uh, we've talked on the phone once or twice in the last few months, but it's just nice to see your face again.
1: Yeah, it's been. Uh, I mean, that's the nature of the business, right? I mean, we're we're like very small community, and yet we hardly ever see each other in person
0: in general. Yeah. But specifically when you make friends with someone, cause you live in the same place, <laughs> right. in in our case, you lived in the same place twice and spent a, a little bit of time together. And then we're separated by work and family took us in different places. And, yeah. and so, yeah, it's just, it's, it's nice to reconvene with friends. And if there's one, there are, you know, there are a lot of pros to go with every con, and so obviously, uh, COVID nineteen is a horrible thing and it's a big bad thing. But there are a couple of positives coming out of it, and one of them is that we've been forced to do our meetings online, and that has made it easier to visit with old friends. Right. So There's that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thanks again for coming on. And, My pleasure. Uh, it was really and, great. And uh, are, so you're going to you're going to stream some of this stuff that uh, the these first performances. Is that what I saw? Um, from, um, from Washburn at Washburn university. Well, we, our
0: first concert of the, of the year is canceled. And, and so our second concert, we're planning to live stream. If we make it that far, which is somewhat likely, then we'll live stream those concerts. And then just today, we had a faculty meeting where one and a faculty member informed me about a theater in town that is looking to do online events and is willing to produce them. And so I'm going to talk to them and I might, um, have multiple things, but, but for sure, anyone of your audience that, that is interested can uh, just find me on Facebook, Silas Nathaniel Huff, or my website, I'm Silas Huff. I think I'm the only Silas Huff alive right now. I think, think so. so, yeah. I'm certainly the only Silas Nathaniel Huff. <laughs> That's my for sure. It's easy to find, and if you can find that, you can find my calendar, and I put links to all my events on there. So, uh,
1: yeah. All right. Well, there you have it. Well, thank you, sir, and, and um, I'm sure we'll have you back. Thanks, Grant. Talk it's about- a to nice chat with you again. Another one. You too. Thanks yeah. a lot. And I'll see you soon. If you like what you have heard and want to support the advocacy of American orchestral music, please consider signing up to donate regularly at Patreon.com for our continued production of this podcast. Also, subscribe for updates wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.